Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to David and we're going to talk about investing in fintech and e-commerce on the East Coast. How do they do it on the East Coast? Because I hear it's a completely different ballgame from the West Coast. And of course, linked to this is our thoughts on digital transformation that accelerated during the pandemic, gave boost to certain industries, whether that was e-commerce or was neobanks. But is this sustainable? Will we now see a bit of a dip in this and people come back to their old routines from before or what's going to happen? So I'm very curious to find out more. Welcome, David. How are you? I am doing well. I am indeed on the East Coast sitting in New York City today. Good to meet you, Rudy. All right. Brilliant. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, David? Of course. I am a partner at Active and Capital. I've been a 12 plus year tech investor. I do have to admit, I am not an East Coaster by birth. I was born abroad in Taiwan, grew up in Southern California in a master plan suburb where everything was a different shade of beige. It was college and the, the quest for seasons, culture, history that brought me to the East Coast in the first place. And I've pretty much been here ever since. And then I also, I think after school, found my way into tech investing. Started my career at a larger, later stage growth and buyout firms, but realized pretty quickly that I wanted to work with much growthier businesses, earlier stage companies, uh, wanted to spend more time in fintech. So I found my way here to Activent uh, a couple of years ago. And then where I focus my time now across a couple of sectors, fintech, obviously, particularly consumer, e-commerce enablement, and uh, supply chain and logistics more broadly. We have a view here at Activent that all these things uh, tie pretty close together and are extensions of each other. It's good to be on the podcast. So in my day in New York, people used to say, if you've lived in New York for more than 10 years, you are a New Yorker. So you already surpassed this, right? I, have, I qualify now. I am an adopted New Yorker. So can you describe and explain to us what is Activum Capital? What do you do? What is your focus? Of course, we are a global investment firm. We're focused on growth tech investing. There's about 15 of us total spanning four offices around the world, including here in New York, Berlin, and Cape Town in South Africa. And so where we spend our time is commerce infrastructure. And we think of it as how you make, move, sell, pay, and consume something. That means, as I said earlier, fintech, logistics, supply chain, and e-commerce enablement. And so within that, pretty simple, we're looking for the best management teams and companies that are trying to change legacy areas of commerce to create fundamentally better customer experiences. That's what we do. All right. So let's dive into it a little bit more and give people perspective using stats, right? You're an investor, so you understand this. How long have you been around? How many funds are we talking about? How much money you've raised? We have been around with dedicated institutional vehicles, dedicated institutional funds. We are coming up, I believe, on our 
seventh year. Before that, we the firm got going as a special purpose vehicle, raising funds for one-off transactions, one-off investments. I think at this point, we have raised over $800 million of capital, and I would say we've invested in many dozens of, of companies to date. I love that you are thesis-driven because some VCs say that they have so much inbound that they don't know what to do with I think the best ones do both and they do also outreach and they have a view mm-hmm. on what's going on mm-hmm. in the world. So coming back to the thesis that you believe in and you want to follow up on when you are investing, what are the couple of uh, themes that you are now pursuing? Sure. Yeah, indeed. I think we one of the ways we think about ourselves is that we are research-driven, thesis-led investors. That is how we find our way, we think, to the most interesting companies and management teams. I'd say one of the themes we've been working on, I've been spending time thinking about, is unbundling Amazon. Uh, all of Amazon's uh, superpowers, what they've done well, making it available to merchants who don't want to do all of their business on Amazon, who are or not on Amazon. We've been spending time in, I've been spending time in fintech, kind of consumer fintech, thinking there's still more innovation to come. I know we've obviously had Neobanks, in my mind, Neobanks 1.0, but I think there's still more to be done there. We are in the early innings. Uh, we spent, a, uh, I'd say maybe last one to highlight, we've spent some time thinking about supply chain frankly, right? With the pandemic uh, that we all just uh, lived through, whether it's more visibility and resilience in our supply chains or needing better software to help us manage the flow of goods uh, or improving the last mile, uh, which is getting things to folks sooner, quicker. All of that, I think, has been yeah, made much more interesting, if anything, by the, the pandemic and the post-pandemic life we're living in. A few of the areas I've been spending time on recently. So let's follow up on Amazon. You said that Amazon has superpowers. So let's define it. What does that mean, a superpower, when it comes to Amazon? Yeah, I think that is exactly where you'd start. What those superpowers are, I would argue there are many, but one of the biggest things they've done is convenience, right? Almost to the point where you're a little more agnostic on price. I personally remember just the comparison shopping the heck out of stuff, maybe in the earlier days of the, but Amazon, especially now with their dedicated app on my phone, has made it very easy for me to just, if I want something, I know what I want, pull up Amazon, punch in the search, and then I think the one, two, three kind of choices are probably good enough. And I know it's going to get here quick. I know my payments information is all in there. And so the convenience of it all is, I would argue, one of their superpowers. And I think unpacking that a little bit, right? There are many components that go into that, whether it's a one-click checkout, whether it's same-day shipping, whether it's how they curate and show you search results. There's a lot of things that Amazon, for all of its maybe warts, does very well and obviously has built it into what it is today. We've been spending time looking at sort of each of those components, looking at folks who are startups, companies, founders, teams, who are tackling each of those things, maybe a couple of those things at the same time, and then, yeah, taking that and making it available to, to, to the D2C retailer that doesn't want to share X percentage of their sales with Amazon, doesn't want all their customer data on Amazon. We think that's a really compelling area. We've made investments there and we're still continue to be very active there. I see. Some of these, like one click, could be detrimental for other businesses, right? Because people or consumers are now so used to this that uh, anything that takes more than one click, it feels like work to them. So... How do you deal with that? Move towards convenience in whether it's in how fast we get our goods, whether it's in how fast we can check out, whether it's in how fast we can buy and buy something we're in the market for. I think that's definitely where the world is headed. 
So how do you see the future of e-commerce? Because, of course, during the pandemic, the e-commerce portion in terms of retail in many countries or all the countries have spiked, but maybe it's going down a little bit and there is a dip this year, right? So how do you see it going forward? Are people going to come back to brick and mortar shops and, uh, and why? Yeah, I obviously the pandemic massively accelerated the kind of growth and penetration of e-commerce. And I think even in those early days or during while the penetration was off the charts, I don't know, 30% of US retail sales was being done online. I think many were already thinking and saying, yeah, that's probably not going to last. But the bigger question is maybe where does e-com penetration settle post, post this acceleration, right? And I'm in the bucket or in the camp very much that we're definitely not going back to where we were before that. It's going to come back down or it has come back down as we've seen as Amazon's growth has slowed, as e-com growth has slowed. But penetration is definitely, in my mind, still higher than, than what it was before, whether it's some of the stats we've looked at or whether it's just in my own life personally. Certain things, once you start buying it online, maybe you didn't think you could or didn't think to do it before. Pandemic led you to change your behavior. Now, post-pandemic, it's probably hard to switch back. So Definitely more in store, right? Definitely going back a bit to normal, but not to the same levels before. Still definitely further penetrated and above that. Yeah, I recall that stat that you mentioned that the 30% of retail trade in America is now done online. The high water mark, yeah. But I'm a big fan of e-commerce, so I'm wondering why not more, actually? Why not more than 50%? Are there behavioral reasons for it or are there structural reasons for it? Why it hasn't gone over 50% mark? Yeah, I again, pardon my parlance, I think in terms of versions, <laughs> but Ecom 1.0 in my mind is what we've got today. This is the, as I was describing earlier, the search-led intent-based user experience. You know what you want, you boot up Amazon, you boot up Taobao, you punch it in, you buy it. And I think that accounts for 30%, maybe a good chunk of let's say retail sales, but this is maybe 2.0 if you'll excuse my parlance, is it's capturing the, I guess, another set of experiences. This is the more kind of discovery-based. This is the entertainment or social. I like to think of it as going to the mall with your friends type of experience. When I was younger and had more free time to go to the mall, which may be an American thing, may not. You go to a hangout at the mall with your friends. You don't really have any particular thing you need to buy, but as you're maybe browsing some stores, eating some food at the food court, you end up picking up an extra pair of jeans or a t-shirt or a hat, things like that. You didn't really start the day looking to buy, but because of, yeah, again, you're having fun with friends, you're in the moment, you're in the experience, you are purchasing. In my mind, this kind of e-com 2.0 feels that that would be another big chunk to further drive that penetration of e-com as a percentage of a sort of total sales that is still, that is still on the come. But even, of course, Amazon is not always correct. And some of the features that they tried on didn't work out, like Amazon Dash. Maybe they will work out later on in the future. Basically, assuming that uh, the algorithms know you so well, they just ship the product to you before you order it. So you first ship and then you buy. So similar concept you have with fashion, with Zalando. They send you a bunch of boxes, you try the stuff out, and you return maybe two-thirds of it, right? So it seems like then in Asia, the social media, social aspects of shopping and online shopping go hand in hand. So how would you compare Asia to the U.S. and the rest of the world? Yeah, I would say Asia, maybe more broadly, but China more specifically, it's just been such a maybe minus or not completely taking into account sort of recent headwinds and macroeconomic or geopolitical concerns. But at least historically, it's been such such a compelling market for 
consumer internet innovation more broadly and then kind of commerce more specifically because you you've got one of the world's largest and fastest growing middle classes and there is less or or none kind of legacy offline or the sort of the fragmented incumbent infrastructure and competition you're able to make a leap from wired to wireless and mobile phones someone like alibaba could build a super app with e-com logistics payments and everything because there were established existing kind of competitors in each of those segments so yeah it's been such a, a market a lab for i think really interesting innovation and yeah a bit where i'm drawing my thoughts and comments from i think china has done some really interesting things on the not just social media with a TikTok, but on the commerce and shopping side as well whether it's let's say live commerce short form videos how they handle payments all of that i think there's definitely lessons for the u.s to be to the you know u.s entrepreneurs and CEOs and founders to learn from. Not all of it will be applicable, but uh, but definitely a place to to study and think about, especially as it relates to kind of consumer internet and commerce. So it sounds like there is a social or entertainment element to shopping, and that's why people like to go to shops and they like to go to malls, as you talked about. So there's probably some sort of leapfrogging going on as well. But in the US and in other countries, uh, people talk about building super apps, which you mentioned they exist in China. So how do super apps work there versus the rest of the world? Yeah, yeah, this is an area where it almost is pretty a lot of it's maybe China specific, less, I could say less, you don't see those conditions here in the States, by which I mean, yeah, one is the leapfrog, lack of existing competition. When Alibaba got going, it could build basically all of big tech here in the US all under one roof in China. I think there was also implicitly kind of government support almost for, for effectively kind of monopolies or oligopolies. Obviously that's also potentially changing in China. I'd say over the last 10, 15 years, it was both the domestic market, the chance to leapfrog existing incumbents and government effectively support that led it to build these super apps. I think in the US, many of those or several of those pieces are missing. Maybe all those pieces are missing. So I think building a super app here in the States is is much more complicated. So I don't think super apps should be the goal but that shouldn't keep companies from not just sitting on kind of product one. You should continue to look to add features and, and products. You might not become a super app, but there's definitely a roadmap and more things to build. And that's why maybe last thing I'd say is that's why commerce infrastructure is so interesting for us and why we invest there. If you start life as an e-com company, I would argue you should be thinking about logistics as your next kind of product or feature or place on the roadmap. Or if you're a business, you sure as heck should be thinking about fintech and payments and financial services and lending. I think there's all these, again, all these interesting things. So maybe it's not super app, but definitely I think companies after they get kind of product market fit with their kind of core product, making sure to look ahead to think about what else you can add to the to the platform in commerce infrastructure is, yeah, maybe one of the biggest lessons coming out of China <laughs> more broadly uh, for me. So let's turn our attention to neobanks, because you could see it in many jurisdictions, many countries, that the neobanks have been obviously attacking aggressively a certain pain point in the value chain or in the customer journey of the users, and they've been racing to get as many users or customers as possible. But of course, now the pressure is on to make it all profitable. So are you having tough conversations with your investees or everything is under control, given the macro environment that we are experiencing in 2022? That's a good question. I I would say we are having tough conversations, but that's probably across the board. Given the 
I guess, the gnarly year we've had, whether it's in private markets, public markets, the broader macro or geopolitical, I think that's necessitated a lot of just tough conversations with, with our portfolio companies. And I'd say neobanks are not immune, obviously, to those to those headwinds. Yeah, I'd say we are spending time thinking about that, but also thinking ahead. As I said earlier, I think there's still a lot of interesting opportunities in consumer fintech land. Again, early innings, fintech 1.0. There's, I think 2.0 still to be had, whether it's Activent and where we look to invest or our existing portfolio companies taking advantage of those opportunities. We're having tough conversations, but also looking ahead to what we still think is a really compelling opportunity. So for many fintechs, there are broadly two large paths that they can follow. They may realize that building a B2C brand is very expensive and it takes a long time and effort. And that's why they turn to working with incumbents and maybe we're talking about a B2BC route that works for them or B2B or they turn themselves into a marketplace. So instead of building out capabilities and products adjacent to that initial product or pain point that they came up with, they will partner with others, whether that when you're looking at neobanks, whether that has to do with investments or forex transfers and things like this, and they just share the flows, right? But it may be difficult to work with incumbents because the incumbents still might have a legacy infrastructure. So all you may end up doing is doing some sort of a paint job. So how do you feel about this potential routes these days? How does this work when you work with fintechs? Are they turning more towards B2B or they are pushing forward with the B2C? Yeah, that's a, another good question. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. Maybe that's an easy place to start. I think very much it is probably neobank, right, or consumer fintech specific. I think if you're in the privileged spot of you maybe didn't raise at a silly valuation last year, so the overhang to get you to the next round is not that large. You can continue investing and growing to get to the size and shape where you can raise. Then for a company like that, I would say continue to invest, continue to build. Um, maybe for a company in, in, in a tighter spot, uh, then yeah, there probably is an element of being that much more judicious with, with spend. And that could necessitate trimming back, not just investments in product maybe, but also in, in marketing uh, to conserve cash. Obviously marketing is a, a big chunk of, of most uh, kind of consumer fintech businesses, whether it's seeking to build their own brand or heck, even investing in a, a partnership with, a, with an existing kind of incumbent financial services firm. But I, I all of that aside, the again, it's idiosyncratic in certain things in terms of how you specifically manage, uh, let's say cash and burn and the go forward. But uh, I would say overall, though, everyone in consumer fintech land should still be thinking about this is the, the best kind of acquisition. In my mind, how you build moats is that, yeah, as you said, it's brand, it's distribution, it's go to market. And whether that comes from sort of product led, so maybe you need to continue investing in a really interesting product, differentiated product, and there are some guys out there with that, or it's you need to invest in a really interesting privileged channel partnership you have whether it's with an existing incumbent or not, or it's because maybe you've got scale and size and better economics than everybody else. And so you can maybe spend that much more on CAC, let's say, than the next guy. But really thinking and being clear about your, you know, kind of distribution, go-to-market advantages, because I, I think even more so than other things, that's what will you know, help you build a moat. That's what help you persist. And then ideally, you turn all that investment into real brand, however you define it exactly. But that, that, I think, gives you some interesting long-term modes. So moving on further, let's talk about the relationships between VC investors and their investee companies or portfolio companies. It has become obvious over the past few decades that uh, providing just money is not enough. So 
What is your angle? We talked about uh, research, we talked about being thesis-driven and uh, doing the proactive outreach, but uh, what is your angle? What do you provide in addition to money? You're right. It's been, it's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. I'd say first, we are deep thematic investors across commerce infrastructure. Happy to double click on or further discuss any of what we've already talked about before, but we look to stay sharp and, and update our views and keep on top of what's happening in the world. We always think that that could be useful, interesting, helpful to our portfolio companies. But I'd say second, and maybe even and more importantly, we are deeply committed to our companies and team. We think of companies as we like to call it N of one. I think the average partner here sits on just maybe one or two boards. Uh, we look to help with growth and go-to-market strategies, making introductions to immersed partners, people in our ecosystem. Uh, we help with talent and hiring. Uh, we'll go even as far as seconding folks from Activant at our portfolio companies when needed. We're involved in the financials and the fundraising, including looking to continue investing in our port portfolio companies over the subsequent rounds. So yeah, we very much view ourselves as trusted counselors or wanting to be a trusted counselor and doing what it takes to earn the right to invest and become that counselor. That's how we think about it. All right, let's talk about some examples and potentially some success stories, right? So what are some of the fintechs that you invested in and what was your approach? How did you work with them or how do you work with them today? Sure. One fun one that I've spent a good amount of time with in our portfolio is a company called Papaya Pay. They are reimagining consumer bill pay. They're effectively looking to bring bill pay back, take bill pay back from billers and uh, bringing it back to whether it's banks and financial institutions, or even more interestingly, back to consumers themselves. What you've seen in the States is a meaningful shift where you now go to verizonwireless.com or through Verizon Wireless's app, you look to, to pay your bills when one should argue that it'd be better if all your bills were in one central place, whether it's through your banking app, Chase or Neobank, or it's a dedicated app on your own phone, but ideally you could see all your bills in one place. I think bill pay is something like $4 trillion in the States and 30% of consumer spending. So a, a lot of payment volumes go through that. And I think really interesting value to folks who can aggregate it, make it a, a much more pleasant experience for consumers uh, at the end of the day. But yeah, that's a company we've known for a while. And I'd say touches on a lot of the thematic stuff we spend time on, whether it's payments or e-commerce. We've looked to be, I guess, just helpful kind of however we can, wherever we can. We don't actually sit on the board here. We're investors, but a, a very yeah proactive one. Uh, active dialogue, obviously, with management and thoughtful with, uh, we hope, thoughtful with whether it's uh, people introductions or model discussions or heck, even M&A or choosing vendors and suppliers like which issuer processor they should use, which maybe BAS partner they could think about talking a bit about the roadmap going forward. Yeah, it's a real, it's almost like a marriage, I guess, <laughs> a lot of back and forth, I think, healthy conversation. Uh, and then bringing to bear, yeah, where we can from our network and ecosystem, these people, partners, things like that. All right. So let's clarify your investment approach from the funds perspective as well. What are the check sizes? What are the rounds that you're focusing on? Is this seed or pre-seed or A or B, etc.? And what is your approach to governance? Are you pushing for a board seed or observer seed each and every time? Or you do follow as well or both? How does this work? Yeah, we generally focus on series B and C companies, but we can go earlier and later. I'd say our sweet spot in terms of investment size is maybe 10 to 30, 10 to 40. But again, it could be smaller and larger. 
<clears throat> we're generally looking to lead rounds and take board seats, but we can be flexible. And we, I'd say one thing to highlight is we have fun lives of 15 years, which we think is unique and suggests signals that we're in it for the long haul. So that's maybe more tactically where we sit and how we invest. All right, great stuff, all wonderful. Now, what would be the best way for people to reach out and get in touch with you and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? Yeah, our website, activeandcapital.com is where I'd go. We have uh, been, I think, thoughtful about how we present ourselves and how we think about ourselves. So we've got research pieces and uh, perspectives and publications on uh, why we've made certain investments. I think that's the best place to start to, to learn all about us. And then obviously shouldn't hesitate to reach out to any of us or more generally, I think contact information is on the site or you can find us on LinkedIn. I think many ways to, to reach out to us. Um, your, your second question, who should reach out to us? I go back a little bit to, to where I started. We're at the end of the day, we're just looking to find and work with uh, the best management teams and companies, trying to be their, their trusted advisors, uh, earn the right to invest, earn the right to counsel, the best founders and management teams looking to change and disrupt the legacy industries in the commerce infrastructure. Those are the folks we'd love to, to talk to. I'd say anybody with, looking to engage on any of the topics we spend time on as well, just more generally happy to chat as well. So that's where, I'd, that's where I'd leave it. All right, great. Thank you so much, David, and good luck to you and Active and Capital. Thank you so much, Rudy. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.